AJ, I understand you grew up in Ohio. Yeah, I grew up in the Cincinnati area. Just see. north, actually, Westchester, Ohio. So You say you have a very happy... You have very yeah, happy my childhood was awesome. Me. I had great parents, thankfully. That's awesome. They and were really supportive. Well, when did you break the news to them that you said, Mom, Dad, I have something to tell you. I want to be a filmmaker. I think they figured it out when my dad brought home a camera from... He was a professor at Miami of Ohio. And so he would periodically get a chance to check out some of the gear from, at the time it was the library, I think. And they had those, one of those shoulder VHS cameras. And he would bring it home for, you know, to record opening presents on Christmas or whatever it was that we were doing, family-wise. But I would steal it and go make little films. And I think they figured it out pretty early on that I was gonna be interested in that kind of thing, so. So this is what, 1990-some? Yeah, I, I was born in 84, so my first film, I was eight, so I was like 92, I think. And what are you editing on at that time? Uh, and the cameras back in the day, they had this little thing called an edit button where you would just basically rock her back and forth and get to where you wanted to start the next edit and then you would have to like basically have the person in mid-motion and start recording at the right moment. Uh, and I would just edit in the camera. I never really did any linear editing until maybe I was 15 or 16 years old when digital cameras came out and they were a little more prevalent and easily accessible uh, funding-wise. <laughs> um, I worked at Best Buy so when I was 16 I got one of those cameras and I was like oh man you can actually like cut an iMovie and do things in slow motion. I got a little slow motion heavy for that for like a year or two after that but yeah it was neat to already have the experience of to me, it was a luxury to have linear editing at that point because you're like, oh man, I don't have to like have the person start where they were gonna be in the next shot. And looking back on it, it's pretty complicated work that we were doing. But I also, I think I figured out a way to like hook my Nintendo 64 up through into a CD player and then split that into another VCR and then go into another VCR and then add soundtracks. That was in, in sound effects. We'd, play, we'd do four-player Goldeneye, so we could have one person being each person and controlling the sound effects for the action scenes and whatnot, so. So were you the kind of kid that would take stuff apart so you could see how it worked yeah, and put it back together? Yeah, I did. I, I, oh man, my parents bought me like one of these electronic, uh, I wanna say a rector set, but it's not. It's something that, we, it's like a basically a computer, but you hook it up with different wires and you can make it do different things. I don't know, that really interested me when I was very young. I was probably like late 80s, early 90s when that came out. And then I, w I remember one time I was in first or second grade, I took apart a rotary telephone and hooked up a battery to it and made it work like in class. It was pretty cool. So I was doing stuff like that all the time when I was a little kid. Little engineering stuff. I didn't realize it was engineering though at the time. I look back on it now and I realize that I, I really enjoyed that. I kind of wish I went to school for engineering because I'd probably be uh, able to utilize that knowledge in the field of film, like designing camera rigs and stuff like that now. What did you choose as your major? Uh, mass communications, because it was the closest thing to film uh, that they had at Miami of Ohio. And for the first year or two, I didn't really like it there because I felt like I wanted to actually go to a film school. Because at the time, it was sort of a big deal to go to a film school. It was like people were, you know, it was right after Pulp Fiction and Robert Rodriguez's The World were making their films and becoming big successes and uh, you know there were there was a lot of kind of hype about going to film school at that time and I 
I thought about it for a long time and I think I wanted to do that just so I could get access to the gear really um, to make mo more movies but I read Robert Rodriguez's Rebel Without a Crew and I was like I guess I don't really need to go to film school I could just make my own films and learn from that so that's kind of what I chose to do and my dad also was like hey do you want to go to college for free because I work here or do you want to come out of college with however much debt and no degree that anybody cares about I was like well don't want the debt so I uh, I I made the most of my time at Miami I started a film society there and we were able to get funds for a lot of neat gear that wasn't available at the time and it's actually still running today there's a, a pretty large group of students that are putting that are that's still keeping it going and they're constantly getting new gear and staying on the cutting edge of the technology today so I go back there every now and then and teach a class and get to interact with those kids. They're great. And they, they're also coming out here for the summer in June, actually. They'll be here for something called Inside Hollywood that was put together by some of the professors that I work with there. And it's basically a chance for students to come interact with the alums from Miami and also just get a chance to see what it's like to be out in LA and, and the business side of things. So they're not uh, coming out here with stars in their eyes. They're coming out here with like legitimate ideas of what they want to do with themselves. Well, speaking of which, you showed us a video of yourself when you were, what, was it eight years old? Yeah. Oh, well, I was 12, actually. Oh, 12. I'm sorry. Okay. And uh, you said something very interesting. You you were being shown with some, like, you know, movie music in the background. You said that you want to do this, but not to become famous. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, didn't be, I didn't come out here to be famous, that's for sure. I didn't want to be an actor or anyone that was, like, you know, celebrity of any kind that's not anything that interested me what interested me was making movies that people enjoyed and I wanted to give people the feeling that I felt when I watched movies that I really liked like <clears throat> some of my favorite movies back in the day were Predator Terminator like those kind of movies and I was always super emotionally connected to the characters and because of that the action scenes were like so intense and I felt like uh, you know a lot of intense emotion from those films when I was watching them I wanted to recreate that feeling in my films and hopefully someday make somebody else feel the same thing. So that was what drove me when I was a kid, making movies. I wanted to do that stuff. And I, I could see it myself in my early films, like I would fill in the blanks with all the crappy production design and like you know, silly props and whatnot, but I saw what it really was supposed to be like. And I hoped one day that I could make it really come to life. Thankfully, most recently, I was able to do that. At least to a certain extent on compound fractures. Right. Well, so you knew from a young age that you wanted to do this and your parents, it sound like they were very supportive of whatever endeavor you wanted to go into. Um, how long did it take you to decide to go to the school that your dad was at versus taking uh, It wasn't really my decision ultimately. <laughs> well, I graduated college, or high school really um, as a junior. I had to convince my parents to let me do that. But uh, like I said, um, I felt like I knew what I wanted to do pretty early on. Uh, 14 or 15 years old, I was pretty committed to pursuing film as a career. So high school, once you have a decision like that kind of covered, high school just feels like a big playpen. You're like, here I am stuck in this place because my parents don't have anywhere to put me during the day. I'll probably get in trouble if I don't go to school and have something else to do with my life. Uh, really the main reason why I'm here is doesn't feel like I should be here at this age and I already know what, I'm supposed, what I want to do with myself. So I wrote this like seven page essay to my parents about why I should be able to graduate. 
Um, I happened to have enough credits to graduate, except for like there was some little half credit course that I needed to take for, I think it was English or something like that, from before Miami would recognize that I had graduated. So I did whatever that was in the summertime after my parents agreed to let me do it. And so I started, uh, I started freshman year, I was 16 years old at uh, Miami of Ohio. And then I carried on through there, graduated at 20 and then moved out here the I turned 21. All these years later, you've not stopped. If you go to your IMDb page, you have a ton of credits. You're still under 30. Almost. That's, that's really commendable. I, I was like, one of my goals is to make a movie before I was 30. I did it. It's done. But so many people love the idea of something. It's glamorous. Yeah, I want to be this or that. I want to walk the red carpet. I want to have the notoriety. But they don't stay with it because it's a grind. So See, I, never, I was never motivated by those things, though. Like, walking the red carpet, and the glam, glamorous uh, stuff you talk about, I never really, I never knew much about that stuff. I didn't care about that. I was, I wanted to just make movies. It's hard to explain to someone um, that passion or that need. You just want to do it. You just, keep, and you want to do it bad enough that you'll kind of like just about do anything. You know, you, and you'll associate with people that are feeling the same way. That's what I try to do. I, I kept my friend circle passionate as well. Like the people that I would surround myself with as friends, I would try to keep them the ones that were also pushing as hard as they could to get to the next level of things and constantly making themselves better, constantly challenge one, challenging one another and, you know, shooting for the moon and maybe falling short sometimes, but at least getting, you know, a little further each time. And, uh, you know, it was, it's been tough sometimes because I, you have to leave some people kind of behind, I guess, not behind, but like you just sort of veer off in different paths. Um, that's been probably the most challenging thing. That's, that's been one of the things that sort of did kind of get me to consider maybe quitting at some point because it was, cha it was challenging my friendship sometimes. And, you know, that's tough for a guy that comes from Ohio. It's like one of the most important things to you is friends and family. But I don't know. I've always believed in myself enough that I felt it. I was doing the right doing the right thing, and it seems to have worked so far. All of the choices, of course, I've made some mistakes along the way, but my my main sort of uh, uh, philosophy, I guess, would be the word of keeping you know surrounding yourself with people that are like that. It just really helps out a lot. You know, those are my best friends that right now. I, some of my best friends are, you know, guys that are still trying to get to the next level as well, and it's inspiring to see that from them and then hopefully what, what I'm doing is also inspiring to them. Trade-off, you know, but it's also, you have, thing, you have things that you can relate to with people. You can talk about difficulties that are naturally going to show up from things like that you're doing um, and you have people that can relate to it at that point. Did you feel pressure to your parents to show that you could make a living from this because they're both professionals and they also believed in you? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's a daunting task to come out of a place where this kind of thing is not really done that often and to show up to L.A. all of a sudden and have to figure out where you're going to stand, how you're going to stay afloat. I was, I had a smart mother who made me save up enough money to, to be able to basically live out here for a year without working. 
I just I was able to get work pretty quickly, so I had enough saved. You know that even if I was living a little outside of my means, just from being in LA in general, I could still survive for a longer period of time. I think that's a huge, very very important thing to, for people who are first starting out to do, and that is to save up a bunch of money before you try to come out here, because otherwise you end up chasing your rent every day, and it will be very hard to commit to things that are going to help you get better even free things because when you first start off that was how I got all my jobs I would go on Craigslist and I would just take gigs that were either no pay or very very little pay just so I can get to know people and meet people because all those type of people are are like you at that time and then if you meet people that are like you and you're all kind of coming up together you help each other right it's not easy to just jump on board Steven Spielberg's next project you can't do that you have to have friends that will ultimately become Steven Spielberg or friends that are going to grow along with you. So that way you guys together can, you have a little team with you, you know what I mean? So that was part of my strategy when I first moved out here was to, at the time it was Craigslist, I'm not sure how how uh, effective that is today, but I know there's other things like staffmeup.com and places like that. You can try to get work and put yourself out there. And you know, I would say if you're first starting out, for me the best thing was to take free gigs, have a little money saved aside so I could do that, but then you have, you, those people then owe you a favor too, so if they get a job that's paying, they're gonna be more likely to hook you up. Um, also, I had a reel, which helped a lot. Like I said before, I've been making movies since I was eight, so I had a reasonably decent reel for my age. You know, I was 21 when I first moved out here, so I had a decent amount of stuff on my reel for that, that time period, and it was I think it was impressive to an older group of people who were maybe in their late 20s, early 30s, that were in the position to hire me for things. So they'd be like, oh man, that kid's doing pretty cool stuff already probably he'll be good someday. I think that's what their mentality was. And so they would hire me and give me a chance when maybe they wouldn't have if they didn't see my work. So that was a big important thing too. I, I made a lot of my mistakes early on and then whittled down the best of my work into a reel, which I showed to people, you know, it's two, three minutes long. It was a lot of my early fan film stuff that I did with my friends in college. But it it was good enough that I felt confident to show it to people. And I was actually able to get my first cinematography gig that way. A film called Everyday Joe, a little short film, starred uh, Jason Charles Miller, who consequently, years later, introduced me to Tyler Maine, which is how I got the job for Compound. The first job I got in LA was from, wasn't from him, but I, I worked with him on that project. I met him on that project. It was a free gig, basically. And years later, that's how I got Compound. So that's what I mean. Like, those people are going to, move up, you know, at the same time you are, and then you have a, a good group of friends that you can trade work and war stories with, you know? Well, we always hear how actors should market themselves. What about a DP? I noticed you had some photos of yourself with a camera, which I thought was actually really cool. Like, Yeah, I didn't really learn about people. that till <laughs> I started seeing other people do it. And the people that I saw doing it, I didn't really think were that great. I wasn't impressed with their work, so I was like, wow, if those people are getting work from having pictures of themselves with a the camera, maybe I should do that too, in addition to having a good reel. I still think the good reel is what gets me most of my work. People looking at pictures of me with a camera, maybe that is cool from afar, but to really understand what I can do, just show, I can show them my reel, I don't have to say a word, I can just show them my reel. And so what would you advise other filmmakers have in their reels? What type of, you said it's too I would just say, for cinematographers, the, the challenging things, night shoots, stuff in the rain or in weather of any kind, action, 
stuff where you're moving the camera in crazy ways like with a jib or steadicam or if you're in a helicopter. I've tried to collect those kind of things. And I'll take a gig sometimes if I don't have something because of that. Like, if it, like okay, I took this commercial. It was like a Japanese real estate commercial. It's like the furthest from my normal gig, right? But they were going to let me use a techno crane. So I was like, sure, absolutely, I'll do that commercial. And I went to Chicago and New York, and we used, I got to use a techno crane. I understood what it was all about, and I learned how to do it. Of course, they asked me if I'd ever used it before when I took when I got interviewed for the job, and I was like, yeah, of course. They just don't have the footage yet. They're still editing it. You know, you have to kind of play that game too a little bit. The first red gig I ever got, um, <laughs> I can tell the story now because it's years later. But the first time I ever shot with the red camera, I did not ever have any experience with the red camera up to that point. One of the key questions that they ask you is, have you ever shot with the red before? And it just came out like a few weeks before that. I was like, oh yeah, of course. You know, I shot with it numerous times, like music videos and blah, blah, blah. I just had to make up something because, and then immediately after that, I was Googling the instruction manual and I showed up to set the next day. I even called my professors. I was like, have you guys ever got a hand, your hands on a uh, red camera like at Miami? They're like, I don't even know what you're talking about right now because it was so new. And I was like, oh crap, I'm, gonna, I'm in my, over my head and I got so nervous. So I just I got so nervous that I over-prepared. So I went and I read the entire manual front to back like four times that night. I had notes taken. I had like every possible problem that we could have come up with. I looked on forums and see what people were having, overheating problems, how you fix that, blah, blah, blah. And I showed up to the set the next day and I knew more about the camera than the guy who owned it. And I was like, okay, I'm fine. And then the, the film turned out really cool. It was a little short film called Colony. Um, directed by a friend of mine, Kevin Hamadani. Sorry, Kevin. I don't think I've ever told you this story before, but I didn't know how to use the red camera before Colony. Um, and I ended up ultimately shooting that guy's uh, feature film, Junk, which is now out on DVD. So, a little bit of playing the game. I mean, that's a Hollywood you know, story right there. Like That's the kind of stuff I heard growing up, and that's the kind of stuff I learned from reading Robert Rodriguez's book, where you just kind of like, you know, out here there's no rules, you can kind of make your own rules. Right, so I, I had the planner, I open it up and I look at the back of it and it's like, okay, you need 21 credit hours to graduate. And I didn't say what the hell they were, but it just said you need 21. And I had 20.5 or something like that. So I went to the counselor and I was like, hey, I have 20.5, could I go to summer school and graduate? And she was like, no, absolutely not. And I was like, but it says right here. And then of course my parents backed me up on that. So I was able to like, kind of, nobody would think to do that. I don't, not very many people. I, I don't think would think to figure out how to do that, but I don't like when people tell me what to do, so <laughs> I just figured out a way to do it the way I wanted to do it. And that's kind of how I lived a lot of my early childhood and in life in general, I guess. Um, and I think you have to have a little bit of that in order to navigate your way around these parts in LA and Hollywood. It's a tough game, otherwise. How so? You get beat around, you know, you know, beat up and shoved aside and. You know, people tell you no all the time, and I found no one was ever going to give me the opportunity. I had to take it. So, one of the first movies I ever did out in LA of my own, um, I got a bunch of my friends together who were still in college. I graduated a year early because I was ahead of a lot of them because of the high school thing, and uh, they they had that summer, and I knew what my summer was like. Right after you graduated sort of like, what do I do now? There's not a whole lot of commitments. You have a lot of time. Most people don't have a full-time job yet, but sooner or later, they're all gonna get that, or they're gonna go off and start living their adult lives. 
well, I saw a key opportunity to to get a lot of my old movie making friends back together and take that short period of time that none of us would ever get back again and try to do something with it, something that we would all be able to benefit from. And that would be, that was making a feature film. It's my first film that nobody knows about. It's called Finger Man, Dr. London and the Triangle Force. That's actually my first feature film. Um, although Compound is being sort of presented as my first, my directorial debut, Finger Man was actually my first feature film. And it was a, a major collaborative effort with a lot of my good friends from back in the day. Chris Cowan, Dan Davidson, um, Steve Woolery, Steve Murray, Fonzel Carter, Noah Applebaum, James Flynn. Like these are my really good friends from back in the day that we all came up making movies together. Everybody's off doing their own thing now, for the most part, and they're all successful in their own right. But we all got together for that one little piece of time and we were able to make that. And I think you have to also recognize that sometimes there are gonna be moments where you don't ever get that opportunity back. Like, I, I'm so glad I did that movie because I would never have a lot of the things that I have today because of that movie. Um, and actually, I think one of your questions was gonna be about the American, or the Finger Man on the Lot thing. That legitimized me in a lot of people's eyes and got me a lot of uh, jobs and got me in a lot of doors that I probably wouldn't have been able to get into otherwise. Even though it wasn't even like a big deal, really. I mean. I'll tell you, I'll talk about that later, but, but yeah, Fingerman was a, a huge learning experience, and I still, I watch it today, I'm still happy with that film, I think that was like one of the most fun times of my life, it was a good time, Where but it also was one of the most educational. So from hearing your story, AJ, I'm hearing that you saw the big picture from a very young age, you decided to graduate early, you knew what you needed to do, where did that come from? I think there was a natural time limit built into my life, at least I felt there was. Um, when I was very young, my, my biological father passed away from a brain tumor. And I was made to be aware of this as early as I can consciously remember. So I guess having an understanding that one day you're gonna go, you know, as a child, helps you make your decisions more carefully, I guess. And uh, he died when he was 30, so I had a goal to where I would make a feature film that was like sold in stores and you know seen by the world to say you know you might say uh, before I was 30 and I, it felt really good to, to get compound out because no matter what I did that you know and uh, yeah so I guess having a little bit of knowledge of mortality was whether I knew it or not a motivating factor and having a little bit different picture of how I looked at the world from an early age but thankfully, I had a, you know, fantastic father to figure to raise me. Um, right, at, I mean, it was almost, there was not very much time period between when my biological father passed away and my mom remarried um, to great man that is my father. So I was I was one of the lucky ones. I probably would have turned out a lot different if my mom was a single mom for a long time. That's for sure, because I would have run her into the ground. She describes raising me as a. Uh, uh, water skiing with a speedboat and and having like holding on by like one hand <laughs> so do you think that helps you book work because you're you seem to keep constantly busy yeah I like to stay busy I think uh, you know it's kind of like people say when you get older if you don't move your body and you don't exercise you 
lose it. I feel it's the same way if you stay idle in, in the film business. We kind of, it's hard to kick it back in the gear after a while because it's like you're out of shape almost. I think part of that too is just the constantly changing technology. Just being a cinematographer, I have to stay on top of that stuff. As well as, um, you know, as your network increases, you have a larger group of people that you know and are trying to keep in touch with. You have to, it's a tough maintenance. You have to constantly check in with people, see how they're doing. Um, and they're all oftentimes wanting you to be involved in projects. And I, I have a uh, problem where I, I try to make everybody happy uh, and say yes to as many things as I possibly can. I've been trying to do a little bit less of that these days, but uh, it's worked out pretty darn well for me up until this point because I've been able to do so much in a short period of time. Um, you know, I might make a couple people angry from time to time because things aren't done right off the bat when they're, maybe they're supposed to be, but it gets done. It gets done really well. So I guess the, my, regret would only, my only regret would be that I made somebody upset for a short period of time. But ultimately, it's been beneficial. And I think all the other projects even benefited from it because I've been able to increase my skill set from it as well. Yeah, that's a really hard thing to it's learn tough. to it's say no to a lot of pressure things. from yeah. a lot of people mm -hmm. as a result of that. But what are your secrets for someone? So suppose someone else was asking, you know, I have the same problem. I don't want to tell people no. But at the same time, I realize that I'm actually hurting myself by not. I think it's, it's something you have to know within yourself. Are you capable of doing the, the thing that you're saying yes to? And I think I, you know, as a younger person in my early 20s, I could run three or four days without sleeping. So I made it, took advantage of that fact and pretty much did that on a regular basis. I would go hard for like a week and then I'd crash for like an entire day, 24 hours sleep. And then same thing next week, same thing the following week. And, uh, you know, it catches up to you after a while. I can't do that anymore today. So I have to be a, a little bit conscious of that. Um, I get sick if I don't sleep today. That's bad. I think I write, wrote too many, ch you know, sleep checks and I'm a little in debt as a result of that. But uh, if I have to, I can go hard still. But I, I only do that on projects that are giving me enough back in order to be able to commit that kind of time to it. Also, I've, I've, after having a movie out now, I have, you know, that, that video that you mentioned to me, I've watched that video, and I was like, man, I did that, now what? And so I've been in a place where I'm kind of thinking, like, maybe I want to do other things, too. And I'm not sure exactly what that is yet, but whether it's commercials or, uh, you know, a different aspect of the film industry, another challenge, you might say. Um, I don't know what that is yet. Um, but I also know that I'm interested and excited about things like engineering, and I have been since I was a kid as well. So maybe something along, maybe it's a side project that I'm doing. Maybe it's something that I can inject that part of my brain into to get another, another satisfaction out of life besides just making movies. Because now I've made a movie, it's pretty cool, but you want, like, there's journey never ends, you know? You arrive at a goal and then what's next that's always what I'm thinking I think like the last time we posted something that we talked together one of my things that I talked about was moving on to your next project and that's kind of what I'm always still thinking about so I think this year I have six or seven movies coming out that I shot and they all feel old to me because they were done a year or two ago and uh, 
I'm still thinking about what's next, you know. It's kind of a cool cycle that most professions don't get to experience where you're constantly doing something new, but things that you've done in the past are coming back to remind you like what you've done or they're being released, they're being celebrated, they're being talked about and it's nice, you know, it's exciting. It's a little tough too because some of those things that you've done a year or two years ago don't feel like your best work right now. Like when you're doing your best work and two years ago work comes out, like, oh man, I hope that doesn't, most people aren't gonna see that. They're gonna look at it as for what it is and hopefully feel good about it. But, you know, as an artist, you get a little worried about it sometimes. Like uh, a couple of movies that I've shot are coming out that I shot like two years ago and they're good. But I look at the work and I'm like, man, I wish I could have, I wish I would have done this better or that better. And it's not so much that I think it's a bad job that I did. I just feel like I know so much more now. I want to add that to it. So interesting stuff. Always, always fun. Always new. How did you book the job on Compound Fracture? Well, it goes back to that first gig that I got when I first moved to LA. It was a short film called Everyday Joe, directed by Shane Cole. And it starred Jason Charles Miller as Everyday Joe, uh, who's also, uh, Jason Charles Miller is also the lead singer of the band Godhead. And through my interactions with him on that short, he asked me to direct a music video for him, for Godhead. And it was 2005, 2006 that I did that video. And I had Eric Roberts in it, so that was a huge fun thing for me, like coming straight from Ohio, like, oh man, I'm doing a video with, uh, Academy Award nominated actor, Eric Roberts. I got to direct him, that was really cool. Um, fast forward two years later, I'm doing another music video with Jason. He's started a new, um, he, he's gone down another path with his music. He's now uh, done some alt country and taken his skill set from the industrial music genre and brought it over to his passion from his childhood, which is country music. He's from Virginia, DC area. And so he's tapping back into that, and he asked me to do another video for him. Well, in that video, he had some of his friends come and be in the in the video. It was about a bar, and the time periods that this bar had been through. So I did this video where basically you see the t the bar in like the fifties and the twenties and sixties and the eighties, and, and then now, and it kind of fades between the eras. And one of the eras was the eighties era, and this bartender. Uh, the guy that was playing the bartender was Tyler Maine, and he's friends with Jason. Uh, I, had, I, I knew who he was, but I didn't know him personally at the time. And I forget what was going on on set, but he, he was liking how quick I was moving, I think. And he had been considering who to hire to shoot his film, Compound Fracture, that he was going to be doing. And he asked to look at some of my work, and I put him in front of my laptop and then went back to what I was doing. I had done that a million times, showing people my reel on sets, and you know, it wasn't... An unusual situation so I just kind of let, left him with it and I went back to what I was doing I had a lot more there was a ton of people on set and I had to tend to them um, as the director and the cinematographer it was a tough one so he came back to me at some point and gave me my laptop back and he was like man that was really cool we should get together and talk about uh, this movie that I want to produce compound fracture I was like all right sounds cool I heard that a million times too so I thought nothing of it really. We went back to shooting, finished the video. The video turned out pretty cool. I got an email from him um, basically saying, hey, let's get together and 
talk about this movie. And I was originally at being asked to shoot the film as a cinematographer. Something happened between when I met with Tyler about shooting the film and a couple weeks later, and I, they had asked me, he had said, something's not working out with the director that I have right now. Would you be interested in maybe picking up a slack and doing both? And I was like, absolutely. So I went over to his house a bunch. We, went, we were planning this film for six months maybe. And pretty much from that point forward, it was just like, you know, I was directing the film. And as part of uh, compensation, I, I would say, I was offered the producer credit as well as a little bit of uh, ownership in the film. And, you know, I brought a lot of things to the table for that. I brought knowledge of my equipment and I brought a lot of gear deals and friends to the crew and place, you know, things like that. So, you know, it turned, it was a benefit for both of us and the film got off the ground somehow in January of 2012. Um, our initial shooting plans were going to be, we we're going to shoot it overseas in a country called Georgia. And we had done months of work on, on getting that prepared. We were going to build the set for the house and use all local crew for the most part. And that fell through. Instead of giving up, we were like, well, what if we just do it here? And that's when everything started to come together with, you know, what resources could I bring to the table that would make that happen? Um, and I, cause I've been doing movies for a while at that point and I was able to kind of help coordinate all that and bring it to LA. And we went and did a bunch of location scouting and yeah, this kind of just developed from there. I spent quite a bit of time at Tyler's house during the early parts of that, pr that process. Um, uh, I got to meet his wife, Renee, who wrote the script with Tyler and yeah, it was it was a lot of fun, and I did not expect that some job that I had done off Craigslist as a 21-year-old fresh kid out of Ohio into LA would ultimately bloom into, poss you know, doing my first feature film on a large scale. So it's pretty neat how that works, but it's also kind of like a it was a it's an affirmation of the choices that I made and the the uh, strategy that I had for navigating through the Los Angeles, you know, la la land. Did you actually write an affirmation out or it was just a mental? No, it was just like a mental thing, you know, it was kind of like, oh yeah, it's all that stuff paid off, you know, like all those choices that I had done early on, thankful for them because it ultimately led to you know, you can buy the movie in Walmart and Best Buy now. It's pretty cool. Who's in the film? Tyler Maine. It stars Tyler Maine, Muse Watson, Derek Mears. Three pretty large horror film icons. Tyler Maine was Michael Myers in Rob Zombie's Halloween series. Derek Mears was Jason in Friday the 13th. And also Predator in the most recent Predator films. Um, and Muse Watson, who played Ben, the fisherman with the hook, and I Know What You Did Last Summer. And uh, a lot of the horror film fans have been wanting to see Jason and Michael fight. So this was kind of like a cathartic, you know, film for them, hopefully, to see them go head to head. They're not those characters, but at least they're the actors that play those characters. And uh, I think our film is a little bit, you know, it's a supernatural thriller. So it's a little bit more of a characterization and a story going on than a lot of slasher films that you might see. Um, it goes a little bit more emotionally in depth into those things, uh, the characters, their motivations, that kind of thing. So, I would imagine you saved a ton of money by not filming in Georgia. 
And that's near you know, Russia, I think right? we probably did. It, there was discussion that it would probably save us money to film in Georgia, but I, I don't know, man. Like, I'm glad we didn't. I'll tell you that right now. I wouldn't have been able to do it with so many close friends if I didn't do it in L.A. It was so much easier. I could go home at night. You know, it was nice. How long was the shoot? 18 days. Uh, we also had a day... We had one day of, like, first team pickups, and then I did a few, like, insert shots here and there. So, total of 19, 20 days. And whereabouts did you film it? We shot most of the film in Santa Clarita. There was this house that we had scouted um, out on Newhall Ranch. And it was this former CEO of Newhall's house. And it was, nobody lived in it for, I think, 12 or 13 years. Oh, so it was wow. kind of run down, but it was really cool looking, and it fit a lot of the needs that we were looking for. Um, it's hard to find an isolated house in, in California. I mean, you can you can find some, but exactly the script needed a certain look, and needed a certain uh, surrounding, and needed to have trees. There's a tree house written into the script, so there's a lot of stuff that we needed to have. There was a very you know specific set of needs that we that we had for our location, and that one fit almost all of them. The ones that didn't fit, we made adjustments to the script based on that, but for, you know, it was darn near perfect. And we were the only people that had shot there. Was it haunted? To that. Was it haunted? Uh, <laughs> did any of your gear move or did any? No, no I mean, there was a lot of weird noises in the forest outside the tree, you know, the trees and stuff. I always thought there was some kind of animal stalking me. Whenever I would go out to the restrooms that were like on the outskirts of the set, um, I would, you know, hear something in the woods, and I always felt like I was being watched by something. I thought, and it felt like it was some like a large animal of some kind, like a like a panther or some kind of. I just imagined it being some kind of large cat that would probably tear me apart. So you know, I carried a knife with me when I was around on that set, just because I didn't want to, you know, run into any. It's problems. like Hunter. It's just like Hunter. <laughs> no, but it was really. And I think the security guards and. Several people who, who were there overnight for whatever reason, art department or whatever, would kind of hear the same noises, and we were all speculating what that was. Could have just been the wind, but it's more fun to think it's other things. Right. What did you shoot on? We shot on two red epic. Well, so it was one red epic. We shot on one red epic uh, single camera shoot, and we used Airy Ultra Prime, Airy Ultra Primes as the as the lenses. A range from I think I had a 14 mil all the way on up to 85 primes. So people ask me what I shoot on, I always talk about the glass because to me that's more important than the camera itself because the glass really defines the look of the film. And I really like the way that Airy Ultra Primes flared, and the flare was an important part of the style that I wanted in this film. Anytime there's a ghost, or in my opinion, whenever there's a specter. Uh, present in the film spoiler alert uh, I wanted there to be some kind of flaring going on in the lens almost like it was affecting the, the camera image because I've read a lot about how ghosts can affect the camera image or they change you know they, they cause the orbs aberrations of some kind yeah orbs or flares or things like that for me I wanted it to be flares it was something I could easily accomplish without having a visual effect and it was something that I also liked the way those lenses looked. So I could incorporate into the visual style as well as subliminal uh, 
subliminal things that are going on in the, the filming as well. So when you watch the film, most people aren't going to notice that, but I notice it. So yeah, there's just some things in the film that are kind of like second or third level viewing uh, type details, like with the flaring. And there's also, strange reason, there's a fly just constantly around Gary Muse Watson's character. And it starts with the first time that he senses uh, a presence. Um, and that and the fly just landed on his face and it like caused him to look over where I needed him to look exactly at the right time. And this fly just kept coming into the frame whenever I needed it to come into the frame and doing that same thing. At one point, a fly lands on his face again in the exact same place. And it was like halfway through the film, like days later, and it's the same looking fly, the same, and it landed there for a good amount of time, exactly how long I needed it for. Just all freak, freak occurrences, but that fit perfectly into the film fit perfectly into the uh, the rules of the world that we created. Was the fly union? <laughs> you know, I never got to ask him. He flew away before I could get a chance. Mm -hmm. Now you used a GoPro, you said, for a few of the shots? Yeah, right? I used two GoPros. That had, at the time it was the Hero 2. Uh, the 3 wasn't out yet, but it was a phenomenal little camera and it held up on you know the big screen when I put it on those shots for the big screen. Uh, I used the 1080p setting and I use it as a security cameras in the house and I would just move it from place to place. I also use it as, there's a, this, it's called an eyeball, it's like an Israeli military camera that has 360 degree view and I used it for the view of that as well. I put a little green filter over top of it but uh, when Gary holds up that and it's the POV of that ball, I used that. And then there's also a shot where a guy gets decapitated and I used it at his, his POV as his head rolled. It was pretty wild. I had to design a special rig for that GoPro where I bought a hamster ball. I actually bought a few of them because in case I destroyed one of them. I bought a hamster ball and I weighted it. And I forget what I used, but I had just like duct tape and toothpicks and pieces of like nuts and bolts that were using it. I was using as weights because I didn't have anything like it was, you know, a couple of days before we had to shoot it. So I had to work quickly and make it do what I wanted to do but it was I had to be able to drop it and let it roll a few feet but land exactly where I needed it to land without somebody touching it so I figured it out somehow late at night one night and I just I made this rig and it was it would probably work like three or four times before it broke <laughs> but it worked the first time I used it I used it uh, I just had it sitting there and I dropped it and I let it roll and it just got the perfect shot and we used it in the film it was pretty cool I'll have to send you some pictures of that one. It was not pretty to look at, but it definitely worked. <laughs> and we tested it a few times. I have some footage of it, us testing it, and we're like, yeah, it works. It's awesome. We understand, though, that these horror fans were just waiting for a fight scene that... Yeah, you know, a lot of people want to see Michael Myers and Jason fight. So... Tell us It's about a lot it. of pressure, I guess. I had <laughs> to do that. Um, they do fight in this film. They fight a couple times. And it's an even match, you know. It's you're not real sure who's gonna win because first of all, Derek Mears has a couple things going for him that Tyler doesn't in the in the the story. I'm not gonna say what, but it's a tough one, you know, he's a real tough villain and yeah, I will say that the fights are you know, Tyler and Derek both did a lot of the choreography on that because they're both, you know, 
Tyler used to be a wrestler. Derek is, does a lot of his own stunts, and they're both comfortable with the movement and all that. So I let them kind of go at it and figure out what they wanted to do. Um, that was one of the initial ways that they got Derek on board was Tyler was like, hey, do you want to fight me? And Derek was like, absolutely. And then Tyler was like, no, but like in a movie. And he was like, oh, no, no. well, you said yes already. You said yes already. So they, you know, they agreed to do it. And yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty cool to film that, you know. It's two giant guys. They're both like 6'6", six, six, you know, fighting each other and slamming each other around on cars and kicking each other on the ground and stuff like that. It's pretty wild. How long are those fight scenes and how long did it take to film them? Um, I don't really know exactly how long the fight scenes are at total in the film, but there's quite a quite a bit of fighting, especially at the end. And it took a while to film it. Uh, we filmed the last day, we filmed like almost the whole day, it's just the fight scenes. Um, and we had to still do some pickups to, to make that work because we just ran out of time on a couple things, but it all come together pretty well. And yeah, you know, it's a pretty, pretty heavy part of the film. A lot of action, a lot of uh, intense um, suspense there. Who's gonna win? But we're, it's, you know, have to see the movie, I guess, to see who wins. This is like 2006, I did a music video, I was telling you with Jason Miller, and this actor shows up. Very famous actor, well known, and he didn't really, I don't think he really knew what he was getting himself into, but he showed up on set and he's kind of like, where am I? And like, he was up, he was late, they couldn't find the set, and he was upset about that, and I think he was like, whoever who was, and whoever greeted him, they didn't get a very good vibe from him, and they were like scared and they ran off, and there was like some other shouting and whatever happening, and I was like, and I just, I think my personality as a, just myself, like I don't really like let that stuff penetrate. I kind of, I just listen to what they're saying and I try to like take what they're saying and react to it logically and, you know, with empathy. So I listened to what this guy was saying and he was definitely trying to test. This is my first time getting tested as a director. Um, and it was, a, I'd heard of this happening before and I'd seen it on other sets, but I never had an experience it myself. Um, and it was it was definitely like a challenge for a second, but I anticipated this. So what I had done was, I heard that he could get a little testy in certain situations. So I found out what his favorite food was. I found out what kind of stuff he likes to have around him, what kind of environment he likes to be in, and I made sure that was there for him. Right. So I had him in a private room. It was like a really nice sort of like penthouse area in the area that we were shooting. Um, very comfortable place, nice couches, pretty makeup lady, and delicious vegan food, which is what he liked. And I, and I, I walked up, and I walked up to him. He, he was in the middle of a little bit of a tirade. It wasn't a super big one, but it was definitely like there was ir irritability in his eyes and his voice. And I just walked up to him. And I was like, "Hey, thank you so much for coming. Don't worry, we have your favorite food upstairs. You know." I forget the makeup lady's name at the time, but I was like, she's she's waiting for you, and you know, whatever you need, she's she's there, whatever you need. Also, we have a couple cool props for you, and you're going to be playing a guy that's 500 years old and has the ability to uh, affect people through the use of cell phone technology. And he was just kind of like, 
And I gave him something to like think about for a second. He was like, "Oh, it's gonna be a cool character." So he like went upstairs with it and came back down. And he had like one fingernail painted black and like a <laughs> crazy cane that he had found up there. And he was like walking with a limp. And I was like, "What's the limp for?" And he's like explaining his character's backstory to me. He came up with all this stuff. So I gave him a bunch of stuff to work with to keep him happy and distracted. But also, he took all that and made a better character out of it. So. You know, you just gotta help. You gotta direct that energy. As a director, you gotta take whatever energy is coming towards you and make it somehow funnel it to where it's gonna make your film better. So if they're coming at you with some negative energy, I think you gotta take that and convert it into either something for their character or, you know, give them something to to direct that towards so it becomes either diluted or good energy. How old were you at the time? So that's 2006. So like 22 or 23 years old. Wow. And how did you feel after you saw that you were able to turn around what could have been maybe a tricky situation into what sounds like a really positive one? I didn't really think about it until like long after. I was like, I just heard about stuff in advance, so I wanted to prepare myself again. I over-prepare when I'm nervous about something, so uh, I think I just chalked it up to that, you know? And, and later on I realized that that could have been really bad if it didn't work out the way it worked out. You know, might have been a big problem because we only had that actor for like three or four hours, and I had to shoot as if he was in the whole video. So I needed to get cooperation quickly, and thankfully I was able to do that. It, but it could have gone way wrong if it, if it didn't go the way it went. If I would have just not been prepared and not known, you know, done my homework. I think that's another thing too. You got to show respect to these people. You know, like you have to acknowledge their body of work and basically give them the respect they deserve from being in these films. Maybe maybe they're asking for more sometimes than you might think they deserve, but you got to give it to them. Cuz they they are, you know, working their ass off and putting themselves in front of a camera, which is a risky situation, especially if you're in a bad film. It could hurt your career, it could tear, you know, could destroy their career. If they're in a couple bad films. So there, there's a lot on the line for them. I think it's a lot of pressure on their end as well. Got to just acknowledge that and be empathetic towards it. Tell us about planning. So pre-production, wearing both hats as the DP and the director. What are you doing beforehand? You know, it's weird because for me, this is all the only way I know how to do it. I've never only been the director of anything. I've never let somebody else shoot a project that I was also directing. So I don't know the other way. I don't know how to do it the other way. I don't know how to think about how I'm going to direct it without thinking about how I'm also going to shoot it. Um, so my planning involves both, pretty much simultaneously and seamless, seamlessly, really. Um, when I think about a scene, I visualize it. Like I'm looking at how it will be shot already. And that's almost like, at this point, it's like riding a bike to me. Like I don't even need to think about it on a detailed level about how something is gonna be filmed. And I kind of ran into some issues early on because there was an expectation to get storyboards from me early on. And I just, again, I don't like doing what I don't wanna do. And I felt storyboards were not necessary because I'm the one shooting the film, also directing the film. I didn't really feel the need for that. Um, 
because it's already like in my head. You know, when I'm shooting, when I'm reading a script, even when I read scripts that I'm just the cinematographer on, I'm, I'm reading the script and it's playing out in my head how it's going to be shot. Um, there might be small adjustments on the day, but for the most part, it's already pretty much shot in my head before we even get to set. So it's hard for me to like, I had to, I had to ax that part of my pre-production out because it took too much time for me to physically sit there and draw what my mind was thinking for, it would have taken me days to do this. And I, I needed to spend that time as a cinematographer and a director working on other things. So I, did, I, did, I did, didn't do that. Um, and I think it confused people early on because they didn't really understand how my mind worked in that re regard. Uh, but once we got on set and you saw how things ran, it was understandable, I think, for everybody. Because it was just really smooth sailing as far as the shooting goes. And when I'm in the middle of a sequence, and I, the thing about working with such great actors is they will bring stuff to the table and they'll inject things into the scene that I never could have thought of. However, there's an energy to the way I film it where I'm right there with them, right? And as a director, that helps me also because I'm, I'm literally like inches or feet away from the actor while they're doing their performance and I can feel it. I can feel the aura that's coming off of them when they're doing their thing. And I take that and put it back into the camera. So I'm following, I'm like right there with them and I'm attached to them with that, that energy. And I think that's part of my style. And I can't really divorce myself from that, I don't think. It's not something that I have the ability to separate anymore. It's just something that I need to do. Uh, I need to be operating the camera if I'm the director. Because I can truly watch it from an audience member's perspective by being that close to it. I, just looking at a monitor of it later, like it's a different movie to me. When I'm seeing just flat images and I'm not hearing their voice actually right next to me. I'm hearing it through a microphone, it's a different experience for me than it is to be right there next to them, feeling what they're doing and translating that into what I'm... There's, there was an scene, for example, where Muse Watson's character is like barreling up the hallway and everybody's running out of the room trying to figure out what's going on, why he's shouting, because he's got dementia. And he's just kind of like going off in this ramble. And it was so, like it was one of the coolest single take shots I've ever done as a cinematographer but also as a director, because I was literally right in the scene with them and I was looking with the camera at things that caught my attention that I felt an audience would probably want to look at if they heard it. So things were happening and I was getting in the face of some of the actors while they were doing their thing and I was coming back out and I was going around people and pulling focus from one person to the other while they're observing the other people reacting to things. It's kind of like if I was standing there myself, which I was, going around and trying to notice the things that I thought were the most important in the scene, I grabbed that with the camera. Sometimes it's not always the person talking, but it's the person watching the person talking. And I was able to grab that, and, this, and I think the actors like it too, because they all have to be on their game. It's not just the person speaking that has to be on their game. It's the person that's standing next to them, or the person that's behind them, or across from them. I'm going to get that stuff if I think it's good and so the actors want to give me more as a result I think that's what they say to me at least uh, maybe that's chaotic for them I don't know but I feel like I get better energy from them when I'm in the in the moment with them and there's something satisfying to me on a personal level too when I'm you know when they when they nail it and I nail it it's like a team effort and you're like you know there's something to be proud of there um, and I can make 
very small, minute character adjustments in this mode because I can be right there looking at what they're doing with their hand or their eyes and taking all that in and I can come up to them and private, you know, privately and just whisper a little thing in their ear and they don't, they know exactly what I'm talking about because they also know that I'm noticing that and they're like, oh shit, what's that? Good, I'll give them something else next time. So there's a little bit of, I keep them on their game by doing that, I think. There's, there's less separation. I couldn't just be behind a monitor shouting direction at someone or, you know, that works for a lot of people, but I've never done that before, so I don't know how to do it that way. So I guess it's just, it doesn't seem unusual to me. So you're like an empath with the camera almost. You're empathic, you can feel. Yeah, I, my, especially in this film, I needed to be able to glean as much emotion from the characters as possible on mm -hmm. the frame because to me, this film was more, it was important that the characters came across very, very well for the rest of the story to work. And you needed to understand their motivations and you needed to understand their emotional state in order to get the story. And I think because of that, I really needed to be involved and very close up with the actors, with the camera, as often as possible. Um, I've done films since then which are not that way. You know, they're more of like a action movie, for example. And I like to stay wider in action movies because it's more about what's happening physically in the frame rather than emotionally or in someone's eyes. You can get to those moments in the action film and it really helps to make the scenes more intense. Um, and so I think I bring that to the table with, with action movies as well. But in this film, it wasn't so much about the action. There was a, bit, a lot of action, of course. We did the fighting and with Derek and Tyler, but you know, the whole rest of the film is, is standing on this emotion and this, the relationships and, and the characters. So I had to figure out a way to make that really interesting and impactful because people are so glossed over these days, it's easy to just not pay attention for a second. So you have to hit things a little bit on the head sometimes for people like, and get real close up on it so they can know that's important. Because if you don't show that, if, you, if, if you know it's important and you show it in a medium shot or whatever, it can easily be slipping through the cracks for your audience. Sometimes you have to really get close and really show them things. You can do it in a way that's subtle where maybe they don't notice it, really, but subliminally they catch it because you're like right up on it. And I think that's the beauty of an insert shot. And I learned that on this film, how important the insert shots are because little details would slip through the cracks of the audience sometimes. And so I'd throw that insert in there for a second and they'd get it, they'd understand it. Even if it was a subliminal understanding, the, the scene felt complete. And so not only is being in there with the actors and all that stuff important, but I would notice something that they did with their hand or I would notice something that they did a certain way where they would set the cigarette and a, you know, they would flick the ash of the cigarette. I want that little piece of detail that their character is giving me because it's important sometimes more than what they're saying or what their face is showing because they can, they can be providing you emotional cues in other parts of their body as well. So I guess that's why I do it. That's why I am a cinematographer and a director because I can be in there and notice those things. Instead of just seeing only what is in the frame, I can look down there and see what he's doing real quick and come back to the frame. I can be right up on it and hear something that they said that maybe wasn't coming through the mic or whatever. You know, some people aren't mic'd, you're not always getting the full picture when you're just sitting behind two monitors or a monitor. Um, it's, it's, it's hard, I guess it's a complicated explanation, but when you asked me that, I had to think about it. And that's really what I think it comes down to is, 
it's easier to be observant when I'm that close to them. Going back to when you were growing up and you were surrounded by the idea of psychology and you probably were groomed at a young age to notice little different things in terms of people's body language. How much does that play into it? You're taking that into your art. I don't know that. I don't know that my dad really taught me how to do that. Maybe indirectly somewhat, but I was always kind of an introverted kid when I was young. I think part of it was just being growing up with a single mom for an early part of my childhood. I was a little bit shy and timid. And uh but I still have, you know, I still had the constant observant nature that I always have. And so introverted person with an observant mind will pay attention to how other people are and watch their mannerisms and watch how they are and watch, you know, the structure of the social environment around them and get an understanding of that. It was very tough for me, actually, because I was always a younger person in my classes. Um, actually, I think I skipped a grade early on to it. didn't go to kindergarten because my mom was really diligent and taught me how to read when I was like four or something like that. So I, I was one year behind everybody developmentally speaking and age-wise and so I sort of hung back for a while and I think just a lot of that the way I was as a, as a child I learned how to just sort of people watch really in a detailed way and I also was in this program called Scope which I don't think is around anymore but when I was in elementary school it, it, was, uh, it was like the gifted program and they would teach you little really cool tricks about life that they don't teach you in most classes. Um, and that is that you can kind of make your own rules. Like you can, you can think critically about situations and make your own decisions. You don't have to just follow what people tell you or believe everything that's being said to you. So um, I learned how to provide an extra step in my thought process uh, early on from these classes and interaction with my my teacher there. Ms. Walters was my teacher. She actually hit me up on Facebook the other day and was like excited about my film. That was pretty cool. Um, because she knew I was into films even back then. So, uh, yeah, that class definitely taught me a lot early on. In fact, they taught me one, they taught me uh, how to make the most of certain situations and how to, how to navigate through tough ones where you know if you're maybe sometimes you're not getting a bad grade because you're necessarily a super bad student but maybe your relationship with the teacher's not right there's other levels to life than just what is on a piece of paper or what imdb says or anything like that and so i learned how to understand that early on so i guess that probably contributed quickly to my I would watch a film with that mind mindset and I would try to understand what the director's choices were. You know, I'd watch Terminator 2, which was like my favorite movie for a long time. It still is one of my favorite movies. I can watch it a million times. Still love it. But I would watch it and I would try to understand why he made that, why James Cameron made the decision to shoot that way. Why James Cameron made the decision to have the actor do this or that or move the camera here or what have you. And when I was growing up, they didn't have behind the scenes DVD documentaries that gave away all these secrets. I had to figure it out for myself. So it was a little more challenging, but it was also something I retained a little more. I think it was just an internal film knowledge. From all the movies that I watched, I would try to 
I, I knew I loved a certain scene, so I'd pause that scene, I'd watch it frame by frame, I'd watch it 10, 100 times. And I tried to figure out why I liked that scene. And I figured out, <clears throat> like, as I grew up a little more and I started to have a little more depth to my thought, besides just being an elementary school kid that was looking at his friends, I would, I would think even further, you know, and as you're 14, 15, you start becoming a little more aware of your world, your, your awareness increases. And I, I would watch scenes that I liked when I was younger and, as, with a new eye. And I would go, oh man, I get it. This scene works because the rest of the film works. Like I would watch Heat, right? Michael Mann movie, one of my favorite films as well. There's that crazy gunfight bank robbery scene and about, I think somewhere in the third act. And it's insane. And it's really, really intense. And by the end of it, I'm breathing heavily when I watch it. But it doesn't work the same if I just watch it by itself. If I watch it by itself, it's very impressive and it's really cool. But if I watch the entire film up to that scene, I have all this knowledge in my head, fresh, of who these characters are, what their motivations are, what their emotional state is right before the sequence, and then we're let loose. And all that stuff is carried with you throughout the scene. And that, and I realized it, how important characters are early on, because I was noticing why I liked certain scenes. It was not so much because I thought it was executed well, which was very true. And I would try to emulate that early on. That was like the best I could do as a young filmmaker. I would try to emulate the things I liked, but in a very small way, because you can't really understand it when you're young. So I would try to like emulate shots and emulate framing and emulate the way that pacing was and the edit and all that. But I wasn't quite getting it. And part of it was obviously where I was like a young kid and I didn't have great actors and fantastic production design or great equipment. But part of it was also I didn't quite understand that other part of it until later. And once I started to understand that, I became more interested in, in how that was done, how important uh, the actor is in making the character come to life as well. So all that stuff kind of compounds, you know, when you're doing your own homework, I guess. When I was in college, I would watch two, three movies a day. Even if I was just doing homework and it was on in the background, at least I would have it on in the background. I would look over. Sometimes I could associate stuff I was learning in class with a movie. So I'd be, I'd, when, I read some, when I read about a subject now, and I remembered studying for it in college, I remember, oh, I was watching that scene in Die Hard when I was studying that part of this topic. So I have associations now with movies. Like I'm, I'm, I remember that I was watching this part of this movie when I was taking that test or whatever. And it helped me do better in my grades and stuff because I was associating something I really enjoyed with something I didn't, wasn't necessarily excited about at that age. But um, that's what I learned from. I didn't go to film school and was taught these things from a, from a teacher or a professor. I did the work myself. I, I really spent a lot of time when I was a kid watching movies and just trying to learn from them. Later on, DVD came out and they started doing behind the scenes and people were, you know, the magicians were pulling the curtain back and showing how they did some of the tricks. So I was excited about that because some of the times I'd be right about how I predicted that they would do things and some of the times I'd be wrong. So I'd make adjustments to my thought process based on that. And, and now I can watch a movie. Um, and nine times out of 10, I think I'm pretty accurate about how, when I, try to figure out how they did a certain thing, if it's done in camera. Sometimes this fits CG or whatever, I'm still working on that aspect of my time. I, I don't really don't know how to do a lot of that stuff yet. I'm getting pretty good at compositing, but that's one of the things that I'm trying to develop my, um, a little bit more of a ability in, because uh, I feel like it'll help me as a filmmaker to, to have a knowledge of 
visual effects a little bit more in depth because then I can make decisions on set with that knowledge. Whereas up until now, I've mostly been just doing stuff in camera. And then the people watching. Yeah, the people watching. It sounds like that really shaped you early on. Yeah, yeah, I just, I mean, films. just being a timid, quiet kid for a long time. I wasn't the type of guy that would have like parties and tons of friends over. I had like one or two friends at a time, but they're really good friends, like friends I confided in. So uh, I think I've always been that way to a certain extent. I've been very like um, careful in who I choose to be very close and friend 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 like with me that I share information with that are like on a seriously honest and deep level. Um, just because I. I have found that the people that you spend your time on are the people, are, you know, like, the, like just like I said before, the, the people you surround yourself with, the people you put your time into are, the pe you know, that's the kind of stuff that comes back to you as well. Um, so if you're, I think that's what a lot of young kids get into the problem of they hang around a lot of kids that are doing like drugs and all kinds of bad, what people consider bad things early on. It's hard to get out of that after a while and then the next thing you know you're 30 and not much has happened for you, you know. It's a sad thing, but I don't think people real, maybe realize that how important everything you spend your time on will eventually spend its time on you. So. I mean, that's excellent. Because I think also, too, even if it's not the negative, the drugs and, and, sure. and maybe, you know, crime, whatever, also just the, the social crowd and then always hanging out and then you're never yeah, there's working something, on there's a, it, it takes effort to go socialize with people. Like yeah. That's how I look at it, unfortunately. <laughs> maybe that's just weird to me, but... I, I look at going to a party just for the sake of going to a party as being like tedious and taking time, like valuable time away from what I could possibly be doing otherwise to, to work towards making an you know, impact. Um, some people might look at that as me being a real big Debbie Downer, but I don't really care, honestly, because it's worked for me up to this point. And I have a couple friends who have the same philosophy and they're doing really well for themselves right now. So. It, to me, it, it's something that has worked for me. Everybody has their own way of doing things, but for me, that's been my, my mentality. It seems to be going pretty well. Was there a pivotal moment where you said, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life? <clears throat> yeah, I was, was a sophomore in high school. They had a talent show, and I had kind of kept my filmmaking somewhat low-key and not really like shared that with many people because back then it was kind of a dorky thing to do it wasn't like today where there's YouTube and everybody's doing it it was something you didn't want to like let most people know about because you know it was more along the lines of that like Star Wars kid that got like made fun of a lot on YouTube like that's what people thought you were doing with your films if you told people you made movies um, feel bad for that kid because he was just messing around in his garage you know but it's kind of what we were doing, and I didn't want people to know that um, because I was making mistakes. You know, I was doing a lot of stuff that I knew wasn't quite up to standard, and I wanted to like do that stuff in the privacy of my own home. But I also did it with friends that I trusted, and we would watch the stuff, and I would share it with people that I was close to, and get better slowly. But talent show, I decided that I would do something for that, and I would make a movie for that, and that I would basically out myself as a filmmaker, and. Uh, it was um, one of the most nervous moments of my life. I was so 
nervous to show people. This is a room full of 800 people. I went from like doing little projects on my little iMac um, and showing one or two people and kind of like having a laugh together to all of a sudden I was going to show this project that I made to 800 people of my fellow classmates who everybody who's been to high school knows that high school ain't easy socially. And you know, that's a pretty risky maneuver uh, for a young person. And you know, I wasn't like a super popular kid back then. I had uh, I had friends in all different friend circles, but I was kind of like slipping between the cracks. I wasn't like making myself known very often and I didn't, I liked it that way. I didn't want to be a prominent social figure in, in high school. Not that I could have been anyway, even if I wanted to. But regardless, uh, you know, I showed this movie in the talent show and I know, I remember that there was like a part way through the movie, I got so nervous that I like went to the bathroom and puked. And I was like, wow, like that, I've never felt any kind of emotion that made me that affected where it was like a physical reaction. And I heard like the audience erupt into like applause. And I went in and I, heard, and I watched it and people were like really, ex they liked it. And I was like, whoa, like that was really cool. And I, th and I sat down and all my friends were like patting me on the back and stuff. People were clapping and the credits were rolling. And uh, all that nervousness went away. And it was like the greatest relief I'd ever felt. And I think, <laughs> I think that sort of helped, you know, like make my mind commit to going after what I wanted to do naturally. Um, what I felt I was good at and what I wanted to do inside. So I made a decision, I think, right then that I was going to go pursue movies. And that's what made me want to try to graduate college or high school so early was because I, I was a sophomore when that happened. That was like halfway through my sophomore year. And then I had to endure the rest of that year and the following junior year. And by that point, I had had enough. I was like, I, I had already committed to that in my mind at that point and I was working so hard on all these projects that I was doing. And by after that movie showed, everybody would come to me to, to make their film or to work on whatever video project they had. I had people like, you know, I would do, I did a film for the theater project, like the, the uh, play that they did, it was, I think it was Grease or something. And they had a drive-in movie and I made the drive-in movie for the Grease screen. And I went from being like somebody nobody even really knew their name, maybe they saw me in the hallway, to like people constantly asking me for that stuff and knowing that I was that guy that made movies. And that was like a cool thing to me. Cause I, had, like, I was being my true self and it was accepted. And that felt really cool. So I, I guess because of that affirmation um, and that you know confidence building experience, I was able to basically say, hey, if this works here, I can probably do this for it for a living and feel this way forever, hopefully. So that was, a t that was a pretty intense experience. You know, I think it was like 14 or 15 years old. And that's also a very intense time emotionally as a human being, you know, things are so amplified. Imagine the most intense thing you've ever felt amplified by, you know, an emotional state of a early teenager. So it was pretty intense. That social acceptance, yeah, is like so, it's so crucial. Yeah. So did you go to be 
then when people, you maybe blended in more than they knew your name in the hallway? Were you getting yeah, like a little the bit high fives and the pat on the back? Sort of, yeah, a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. um, again, I wasn't really after that, so I didn't pursue it or try to perpetuate it if it did happen once or twice after that. It was more about people understood what I was capable of in that realm, and they would see potential in making things that they were doing better if I was involved. So, like, you know, like the play, for example, I was asked by... I think it was either the professor or Dan Davidson who ended up being in my other my first feature, Fingerman, um, to do it, and it I think it made the play better because it was something exciting on the screen that it added to the experience of what would normally be something that they were making up verbally. You know, they could actually sit and watch the movie and comment on it for real. So the audience was getting a, a different experience that was a little more multimedia and and kind of you know unusual for that time period people incorporating that sort of thing into a live performance. It was kind of cool. It was different and new and something challenging for them as well. And then other people would ask me to do commercials for their, like, whatever sports event was going on, or, or I think there was, like, a thing in the, in the government class or the economics class where they were selling T-shirts, and I would do commercials for the T-shirts. And it was like, you know, we would emulate things like bullet time in the Matrix and stuff like that to make things exciting, whereas normally they might just be put together really haphazardly and not really interesting. but. I was also in charge of the morning announcements after that, so we would do really cool stuff, and I was like a little bit rebellious, so I would do stuff like, my mom had this old mo like monochrome computer screen, and I like, came in, and part of the morning announcements, they used to have like this like weird title thing where it was just like kind of, I thought it was whack, it was just like, like what are those things called? Old school like graphics machines, I, I wanna say they're like, uh, starts with a Chiron, Chiron. Chiron graphics, right? And they would just do this like weird like switching between the graphics and I was like, oh, that's kind of whack. Why don't we smash a TV with a baseball bat? And so we did that. <laughs> but we did it with like cool like editing and everything. And then I would show stuff like Ferris Bueller, you know, talking about how to fake the parents out and you know, things like that. What movie do you look back at and say with just a twinge of regret, I wish I'd made that? You mean like a movie that I passed on? No, a movie that's out now that someone else made. Is there one that you go, oh, I wish I'd made that. That's like the most perfect film. Oh, man. I don't really feel like, I don't feel that sensation when I look at other people's films. I look at other people's films and I'm impressed with them legitimately, but I don't necessarily want to be that person or wish I was that person or did that film. Because they, they did it their way and I could never have achieved what they had, had done because I would do it my way, be a different way. But the Raid 2, the most recent film that I saw that I was just like, I have a lot of work to do as a filmmaker. This movie <laughs> is so well done. And the action in it is just so perfect. And the cinematography is incredible. And the pacing is just really ballsy. And, and I have a lot of respect for that filmmaker. So he did a great job on that film. And you know I hope he does a lot more. So that's one of those films where I'm like, man, I have like a motivation to continue getting better because that's incredible you know and uh, I'm not threatened by that or anything I just I find it exciting that there's other people out there that make movies that are good enough that I can feel that way about it. AJ we've talked to a lot of actors who've revealed to us that the cinematographer is the one who sort of sees their truth okay 
and you guys have the ability to see them in ways that they can't see themselves. You know, we're all kind of stuck in our own world. We only see what we think we're projecting. How do you experience this with them? What if you see them in another way that's not their brand, but you think that's beneficial to the project or their role? Yeah, I mean, I think that kind of goes along with what I was talking about before with the directing aspect and how I like to be close to the actors. Inevitably, as a cinematographer, I'm always like right next to the actor or I'm, you know, standing over them or, you know, whatever, right next to them with a camera and I'm, you know, sometimes breathing down their neck, basically. Um, and I definitely get a upfront view of what their performance is a lot of time. And... I guess I know enough about the actors that I have an, a knowledge of their history and their their uh, brand, as you call it. Um, but I'm always open to to new things, and I think when I notice something that an actor is doing and I think it's great, I'll let them know that and I'll try to grab it with the camera. And I think I think they appreciate that, um, and they like knowing that someone is paying attention. And someone is appreciating as well, like what they're offering to the film. And if if I can do that, and if I can make an actor feel like they want to give the most because of that, that's I think my job is already done better than I can possibly hope for. And if I can also make it look rad while I'm at it, that's even better. But you know, I've worked with a lot of good act, really great actors, and one of the things I do like about it is it's a team effort. They know what I'm doing. The really great actors know what the camera's doing. And they will tailor their performance a lot of times to what the frame is. They may not accept being held in a small space by a camera, but they can appreciate a shot. If it's a close-up, for example, they can bring they can they move within that frame really well a lot of times. And you know, it's a dance, it's like a it's like having a really good dance partner. And when, when you're doing well, it kind of promotes even more positive dancing you know maybe they'll go an extra mile with a certain move that they normally wouldn't do or they'll feel confident enough or they'll feel free enough to be able to go somewhere with with a performance or a scene that they might not have been able to do if they didn't feel like they were being captured appropriately so I think that's one of my strong points as a cinematographer I would say is that I can I can say that I really pay attention to the actors and I think I try to make them feel like they are being paid attention to and that whatever they're doing is getting captured right and it tends to get people to to put their best foot forward, whatever that is. And it not necessarily has to be their brand. It can be something new that they're wanting to try or, you know, whatever their character is calling for, they can commit to a little bit more because of it. I know you told us a great story beforehand about turning certain situations around, which I thought was really skillful and observant on your part. What are some other tips for, let's say it's the first day of shooting and you're meeting with actors and you're going, you're going to deal with all kinds of people, people pleasers, we talked about being a people pleaser, ones that are going to try you a little bit, maybe ones that are a little bit intimidated by you, they, they don't know how to approach you. What's your way of putting people at ease in those quick moments because maybe there's not a lot of time to really meet sure. them? It's a hard thing to explain or teach somebody I think you just have to be able to look at a situation and have the courage to do whatever is necessary to make it right if you know if that's what's what's going on 
But you know, I think if you're confident, it comes across to other people and they feel a little bit better, a little more comfortable around you. And if you're timid, they're gonna sense that, especially an actor, because they're, they're trained to sense what's going on in someone else's world right across from them. They're gonna sense what's going on in your world. And if you give them confidence and you give them something that makes them feel like they're being taken care of, they're gonna like that and they're gonna wanna reciprocate, hopefully. It's, it's hard to ex teach that or explain that though. You have to be able to, you have to be capable of that yourself. And my, uh, that's what I think at least. So in, in that moment, just knowing how to read someone? Yeah, being able to read someone and just maybe always making sure that you're doing your best to make them look good. Even if you don't think they're doing a good job. If you are your, if you're doing your job right, they'll look good regardless, as best as they can look. And I think, as long as you're doing your job the right way, you can't really like control what anybody else is gonna do, but you can at least try to get the best out of it, you know. Sure. So, I guess that would be my advice. Like, no matter, it, you're gonna have problems in, like at some point, no matter what. But how you handle that problem is gonna be what makes or breaks a situation sometimes. You can sometimes salvage things that are not, you know, you look at it from the outside and you're like, what happened there? But if you if you look at the footage, you're like, oh, okay. And if, if it's treated properly and with respect in the camera, then you can do a lot with not very much sometimes. From your time on set, watching other DPs, what have you seen great DPs do before, during, and after a scene? Because you're so observant as well, but right. also just being around them. It's an intimate experience, the DP and actor relationship, because you're literally staring down the barrel of something right at them, getting what they're doing. And I think the great DPs are the ones that understand that and they treat it with, treat the situation with as much respect as possible, especially in some tough situations when you're doing like a love scene or something really emotional. It's hard for people who are not an actor to understand what it's like to get into a mindset like that and to have the world around them and the world in the frame be that world as good as possible so that the audience will believe it. It's tough. On a movie set, it's not really the environment. It's not a very romantic environment, a movie set. You know, there's a ton of people standing around just staring at you and it's awkward and it takes really a lot of concentration and a lot of effort. And if your air about you as a cinematographer is that this world that you're capturing is protected and you make them feel that that is a protected environment that the actors can be free and comfortable in, then that really helps them a lot, I think, to to divorce themselves from any distractions that might be a present on set as well. And that way they can do their job as good as possible. And that's what I've learned from a lot of the great, uh, better DPs that I've worked with, is that if you can make the environment really comfortable for the actor and let them know that, you're being, that they're being taken care of, really that's the bottom line. And then after, after you say cut? After you say cut. I think, I've developed a relationship with some actors that I worked with where I can, I can sort of give them a look. And it's not something I intentionally do or even do on purpose. It's just like, if I felt it, a lot of times I show that on my face somehow. I can't help it. I'm not a good poker player. <laughs> I, I, will, I will like emote somehow. And I think they sense it. And a lot of times people, a couple actors that I work with 
on a regular basis. We have a relationship where he'll look over at me after a performance and he'll know whether he did it right or not. And it's not what it's not even sometimes whether his performance is right, but how he was situated or or whatever. And I probably shouldn't be talking about this stuff, but you know, that's important, you know, to make sure that whatever they were doing was captured right. And if I felt like I didn't get it right enough, I I don't wanna uh, I don't want to like let that go and just beat around the bush on it. I want to be honest with them, even non-verbally, to let them know it needs to be done again, or it could be better. I think that's a, somewhat of a responsibility of the DP as well, whether they know it or not. Or sometimes it just happens to be the case. Um, you know, the director's decision is always final, and it always is the most important decision because they're the ones seeing the big picture of the film. Um, and sometimes there's other things going on, time and money-wise. But I think for I've I've a few times I've been I've been I've risked being the one at fault so that the actor could get another take. Like I blame myself for something. I say, oh, it's out of focus. And I, you know, just so we can get one more. And it ultimately is not going to hurt anybody. And it's actually going to help them in the editing room. If you have another take, usually that's that's a real good thing. So maybe they'll be mad at me for a short period of time, or, or maybe I've caused a, sh a small hiccup just for a second. But if I was able to help get one more good one that everybody was in sync and in harmony on, including the sound people and the, you know, sometimes uh, as a cinematographer, you're in the position to help someone like that. If the sound people didn't get it, you know, and if it's a, si if it's a difficult political situation on set, I found myself sometimes taking the heat for things where you know, you want to make sure that everybody gets the best version of what they're doing on screen, but sometimes it's a difficult political situation for one or two people or three people or whatever, and you can help each other out that way, you know? Um, it's probably like a secret you shouldn't be telling people, but yeah, it happens every now and then. And I think that's something that you can attest to being focused on the final product more than anything and making sure that's the best, best thing possible. So just to recap, the, the thing a DP should be doing beforehand, during, and after. Okay, I'll make it brief. So before, I think you should be making sure the environment for the actor is very comfortable, that they feel like they're being taken care of in front of the camera. During the take, I think you should be really observant and ve pay very close attention to what the actor is doing, even outside of the frame. It's a challenging thing to do when you're trying to do all kinds of technical stuff as well. But if you can do that, then I think you're, you know, higher up level of, of cinematographer. And then after the fact, I think you can assist the actor in feeling comfortable that that take was right. And I think if it wasn't right, you can be honest with them sometimes. Obviously, it's a case-by-case -case basis, but I think it's important to make sure that the film is the best film possible. That's your job as a cinematographer, to be capturing the best thing you possibly can for the director. And if you feel that it wasn't right, it's tough because it isn't a subjective opinion, and you know it might have been right for the director. In which case, you can state your opinion, but ultimately defer to the director's choice, and that's cool. Because sometimes they actually, most of the time, the director knows better than you anyway. But if you do feel like something technical happened or whatever, I, mean, I think it's important to be honest about that and to make sure that you know nobody's gonna get in trouble in the editing room. Because that's that's a big, that's a real bad thing. Because when when everyone thinks everything's all jolly and then they get in the editing room, they're like, "What happened here?" You know, that's a problem for you. 
as a professional to to have caused some issue in post. So try to avoid that as often as possible by over providing the choices essentially for the director and the editor. And part of that is just like I said, being honest and having somewhat of a you know back and forth nonverbal relationship sometimes with the actor whether you you know they can they can tell just by how you are. I mean, I don't know how this is, if this is the case for everybody, so I'm just telling you how it works for me. But a lot of times for me, that's how it works. So, and I, the directors know this too that I work with. I have enough rapport with them, and they are aware of what I do enough to know that this is part of how it is with this, you know when I'm on the project with them. And then ultimately, the best interest of the project is always at the forefront of my mind and at the director's mind. So collaborative effort is is needed there as well. And sometimes, if there is a problem with an actor, with the director, you can help medi mediate that by providing, again, a comfortable environment for the actor to be in. And, you know, you just gotta navigate those things very carefully. I find it interesting, AJ, that you're talking about things when we ask you certain technical things and you really go to it from an intuitive standpoint. Like you're, you're talking about stuff that's just like almost observational or gut level. Like you know all the technical parts inside and out, but it sounds like a lot of how you operate is by pure instinct in some, to, to sense different, almost like in, in battle, like you're on the front line or something. That's what it feels like sometimes. Mm -hmm. Especially in action sequences where you literally are in, you know, simulated battle. But um, I think part of that is just my style as a cinematographer. You know, again, I, as I said before, this is not always the case for some other DPs. I don't know what the other DPs process is because I'm not that person. I didn't grow up wanting to be a DP, even though I am one now. I didn't go into this business wanting to be a cinematographer. I wanted to be a filmmaker. So I think about things a little bit differently. I'm not so concerned with the technical aspect of things. I am concerned with it on a uh, almost autonomous level. Like I'm aware of the camera's settings at all times. I'm aware of how that well that take was, if it was overexposed, if the light in the background was too bright or something like that. I know those things as I'm watching the footage, but that's not the important thing to me because that's not the important thing for an audience either. If you're going to the movie, you don't care about that. You care about what's happening in the story and you want to remain you're, you want to keep your suspension of disbelief going. And so when I'm shooting a film, I'm trying to do that all the time. I don't, I learned pretty early on that a small technical flaw of some kind is generally going to be overlooked by an average audience member. So I, I took some of the pressure off myself to be perfect technically. It's really not what it's all about. It's okay to be a little bit off or it's okay to have like a small hiccup here and there, you know, whether something's overexposed too slight, too much or whether you were just a little off in the focus on that pool. You know, sometimes that stuff actually works in the middle of a scene if it's organic and it's done in a way that people will assume it was done on purpose. So if you treat it almost like I think you have to achieve a level of technical expertise to get to this point where you can start thinking about other things. I mean, it's like driving a car for the first time. At first you're like, okay, the feet, my feet are on the gas pedal. All right, okay, uh, there's the brake right here and the, okay, the radio, okay, my mirrors are set correctly. Like you're nervous about that when you first start driving a car, but after a while you're looking three or four miles down the horizon. 
to see what's going on. You don't even look at the road in front of you. And they've done studies on this where people's eyes are tracked as a young driver and their eyes are going left and right and up and down and to the gauges. And that's why people get in accidents when they're 15, 16, 17 years old. It's because their eyes are so nervous and focused on all the different technical details around them. They lose track of what's way down the road in front of them. And to me, as a cinematographer, I'm looking down the road, making sure that the film is on the right path and not going down some dead end somewhere, having a problem story-wise, because it's something I'm doing. So I guess it's the same way. Like After a while, you get experienced enough with these cameras and these rigs, and they're all very similar anymore. I mean, it's very hard-pressed to be challenged with settings in a camera anymore. I mean, it's a brand new camera coming out. Okay, that's cool. I'll check it out. I'll see what it's capable of. I can tell pretty quickly based on the specs and based on some of the, you know, the footage that they post from NAB and things like that, what the camera is capable of, where its strengths and weaknesses are, and what kind of uses you can get out of it. So all of that technical stuff I try to do early on in the process. Process like pre-production, I'm choosing the camera, the lenses, the lighting style, and I, I get a lot of this stuff from the director. If the director asks me to, he, you know, or a director is inspired by a certain lighting style. One time a director told me he's a super big fan of David Fincher films. Wants me to light things similar, obviously provide own, my own flair to it, but be similar to these images, and he provided me some images from a David Fincher film. I know David Fincher likes a lot of soft overhead lighting, so I got my package to be my lighting package accordingly, and I explained that to my gaffer accordingly. But once I have that knowledge and that information in their head, I can send them off and say, you know what to do here. We've talked about it. And now I can focus on the more important thing, which is making a good film. And making a good film isn't always making a perfectly technical good film. It's sometimes more about getting on that one opportunity you have to get it, especially in a low budget level, where sometimes you have to be able to just grab a camera and go shoot something that wasn't planned, like that. Like sometimes I'll be shooting a movie in Mexico, and we have 12 minutes to get this action scene on the street done. And there's a car driving up and people running and, you know, complicated coordination of things happening. And if you can achieve those high pressure situation, uh, the only way to do that is actually to have that technical kind of base already built up so that you're not worried about the setting. If you're sitting there fiddling with the camera in the moment, you're gonna miss it. So I think because I've been doing this for like 10 years now professionally, it's kind of something Technical stuff is just not, it doesn't excite me as much. I'm not interested in the cameras and the lenses. I like making those decisions early on, but once I have those decisions made, it's just kind of like, let's choose from this toolbox that we've built for this film, for what's next in the scene, instead of being like, okay, you know, doing the math and all that stuff. I could be a weird cinematographer because I don't like those things, but it just is my style. Yeah, no, it reminds me of, speaking of psychology, the, the Maslow's uh, what, it was hierarchy of needs. So you have security, safety, shelter, you know, all that here. And once that's, you know, met, then you can go to these other, like, mm -hmm. far out, you know, self-acceptance or, what you know, all these different things. It sounds like the same thing for the filmmaking. Once you have, you know, the ISO and all these different things correct, then you can go to other realms with it and really... Yeah, I think you can also start breaking rules. You can start taking the rules that you know and going, I don't really like this rule right now. It doesn't work for me in the scene. I want to break this rule and I have a reason for it. And you can choose to go crazy. Like I remember on Lost Time, I shot a scene at 12,800 ISO. And it turned out really cool looking because I was like, I want to see what this camera can do at that level. And I also, I'm on an alien spacecraft. 
I feel like it would be a totally different experience to a human. And in my mind, there's other light sources going on. There's a whole other spectrum of light maybe that the alien can see. So you're getting blasted, in my mind, with light. And I wanted to have a viewer experience that to a certain extent through the camera. And if that means I pushed the camera to the limit or I pushed it past its limit, then that's what I had to do for the scene. But I just did it because I wanted to do it, not because I thought, oh, well, this, you know, the rule tells me I got to shoot this ISO for, you know, this type of scene. I just, I've, I've worked with the camera so many times, I just got bored of doing it all the right way. I just wanted to do it the way I wanted to do it. Speaking of the right way, what's the right way to take care of a camera when you're not using it? Uh, get a really good AC um, to take care of the camera on the sets. Because the camera's the least of my worries as a cinematographer when I'm on set. If I shoot a shot, like as soon as they say cut, I'm pretty much handing it off to someone else. I won't even want to look at it. I'm coordinating with the director and talking about the next scene with the technical department heads and all that stuff. The camera's the least of my worries. So I assume it's being taken care of by the great teams that I carry with me on my, my crews, uh, the ACs and the, the camera interns and all that. As far as owning a camera, I think um, just be careful with it, you know, like clean it as often as possible. Try not to put it in dangerous situations. Sometimes you can't avoid it. But if you do, do it smart and do it in a way that the camera is going to be as secure as possible. And I think, you know, if you can't afford to break your camera, don't put it in a bad situation. But if you can, if you can find yourself, you know, if it's important for the scene and you feel like it's, if, you know, if it breaks a lens here and there or whatever, it's no big deal. Like, just like anything else, like in a, a movie, you know, a prop or a car crash, like sometimes you have to break something. You know, I don't look at cameras like this super, like, you know, really fragile baby often. I put the camera in crazy situations sometimes, and that's the only way I can get the shot. But I'm also doing it confidently, knowing that I'm not going to do any damage to it. So far, I haven't had any accidents, but I feel like it really contributes to my style. Sometimes I'll put the camera like a foot off the ground for a car chase, you know. If you watch some Michael Bay movies, he's breaking cameras all the time, smashing cameras and whatever, and putting the camera in dangerous places so that it can get the shot that he needs. I mean, a lot of people hate on Michael Bay, but that's pretty awesome that he does that because when you look at things a different way like that, you know, it opens up the door to a lot of different possibilities that you can do if you're super, like, you know, funny about your things. But again, if you are trying to take care of your camera and you are in a big, you know, a way, if you are in a situation where breaking it is a bad thing for you, um, you know, just keep it in a very protective case. I would say, like, I keep my camera in a hard metal box that locks with like metal locks mm. and it has um, memory foam inside of it. Super protective. I could throw that thing off a roof of a building and it'd be fine if I opened it back up. The box might be a little dented, but even the box would probably be fine. So that's the level of care that I put into my equipment. But I'm also, you know, riding out in a helicopter with the door open and hanging that thing out the window every now and then too. So it's, there's a balance there. As a cinematographer, how much gear do you own? It varies. Um, sometimes I buy extra things for a project and I hang on to it. Other times I buy extra things for a project and it gets destroyed. Uh, I have right now uh, two or three cameras, some GoPros, but I don't really use those 
that often on projects that I'm doing, like feature films specifically. And I've been asked several times whether I want to get in on a red camera with somebody or, or own equipment that's very expensive and t you know try to rent it out and things like that. I guess I don't want to limit my... I feel like if I had a red camera myself, I'd probably limit myself to shooting with the red camera all the time. And I think that would be a bad thing because I could I would be choosing that tool sometimes in situations where it wasn't necessary or it wasn't the right camera for the job. And I think it's easy to kind of like justify it by having to pay the bills for it. But I don't necessarily want to be in the business of owning and renting cameras. I want to be in the business of making movies and being a cinematographer. That's a totally different business. Uh, it's a whole other headache to maintain something expensive like that. It's like having a Ferrari. If something goes wrong, everything's expensive to fix. You know, it draws a lot of attention when you're holding it or driving it for your Ferrari. Um, you know, it's just a... I, again, as I said before, like, if you choose your, to spend your time on certain things, they will spend your time, its time on you. If I chose to spend my time on a RED camera and to own it and to have all the hassles that went with that, um, I think I would probably get sucked into that world a little more and have to be dealing with rentals and all this kind of a process, which I don't necessarily want to do. As a person, I'm not really interested in that. So, you know, I've had the op There's a possibility I might have one available to me and possibly partner up with someone on it, but it's not something that I would have to pay for. It would be as a, like a work for hire. I'd be open to that because then I wouldn't feel obligated to use it on any given situation. It might be the right choice sometimes and I probably would use it, but I wouldn't feel like, oh crap, I got to pay my bills on it and then try to figure out a way to work it into whatever project I'm doing. That's what I feel like would happen if I had one or something like it, you know, like a Alexa or something like that. What are your thoughts on owning or, or actually purchasing used gear? You know, even from Craigslist? I, wouldn't, I, I probably personally, I mean, I'm not sponsored by anybody so I can say this. I don't think it makes sense to buy a brand new camera because it's like buying a brand new car. It kind of loses its value as soon as it comes off a lot. It's not a good investment, I don't think. If you buy a used one and get a good deal on it, then you're in good shape. You know, hopefully it'll last you a long time and you know, these days it's a little bit weird because as things are starting to shift over to 4K, so you're in a, you know, it's always that there's always a weird sort of window of time where it's a bad idea to buy used gear because it's going to be too old in a year or two. But I think once things start to come out that's all 4K and like two, three years after that, then you can start buying some of the old 4K cameras and it's going to be fine because it's never going to, it's not going to change for another 10 years or 15 years after that. And our eyes can only see up to a certain number of K, so how many how many more Ks can they come up with? I mean. I'm probably dating myself in this interview by saying that right now. Probably someday they're gonna be like 800K and I'm gonna be like laughed at. But I don't think it really matters after a certain point resolution wise. I mean, I think 4K is already at a little bit overkill, personally. A lot of the films that I've shot that have been released in theaters have only been projected in 2K and they look just fine, I thought. 4K is pretty cool, but I don't see a difference personally. But I also don't have 2020 vision as a cinematographer. It's kind of weird, but I only I, I have to wear glasses sometimes, so it could be just because I don't see a difference personally. But well, what about in terms of editing, though, with 4K? Isn't that going to be more? Sure, it's more processor intensive and mm -hmm. all that, and it takes a lot more space up. But everything's getting cheaper. I mean, an eight terabyte RAID tower that I have is only a few hundred bucks, whereas ten years ago that was like a four or five thousand dollar hard drive, and 
it's all going to get cheaper. I mean, as there's more people owning 4K cameras, there's going to be more demand for more storage space, so things are going to go down in price. It's just the way it is. Mm. I don't think it's going to be much different than when SD turned to HD. People were like, oh man, there's so much data, and they were so blown away by how much data there was, but really it wasn't, nobody's ever really worrying about it today, are they? Can you store stuff in the cloud? That's a little tougher still. Internet's kind of slow overall. I think a part of that is just because well, the cable companies run everything, so they control how fast everything is. Um, I think fiber optics is pretty rad. I've been able to use it a few times, and it's nice because you can just upload stuff and super fast. You know, right now, I'm uploading footage that I shot yesterday. It's 26 gigs, and then unfortunately, this ho this internet I have here is so slow, it's going to take like three days, so I might as well just drive over to my friend's house that has awesome internet and do it in like a few hours. So it just depends. AJ, you're playing Monday morning quarterback with your career. Let's say you're looking at your life, what was it, 10 years ago when you came to LA as a freelance cinematographer, what do you, you know, there's that standard thing, what do you wish you knew then that you know now? The things that I know now, I don't think I could have known then. I think it took a lot of experience and a lot of gigs to get that knowledge and I'm glad that it took that because I feel like it's more ingrained in my, you know, style and just like instinct. Something that I had to earn by working so hard for so long. Um, I think I had a blind confidence when I was younger that helped me kind of push through things that might have been uh, discouraging or, or uh, would have hold, held me back if I dwelled on it too long. And uh, I'm thankful for that. Uh, I think I think that got me past a certain point where now I can I feel like I'm confident enough in my ability that I feel like I really truly feel like I can do just about anything that I was asked to do as a cinematographer. And I ex I'm excited by challenges and things that are tough now because it's you know it's new it's fresh it, it keeps me excited about what I do and I I. I still feel the same way as I did back then because I was constantly learning new things and I think I've, I think there really isn't a whole lot that I would have wished I knew back then that I didn't know. I mean, it, a lot of it I was already kind of doing. It was just more like social stuff, like things that you had to be careful of. I wish that I knew a little more about how crazy LA was when I first moved here because it was it was tough for a little while. I came from a place where people were very nice to you and they say hi all the time and there's no ulterior motives there. And uh, it kind of threw me for a loop for a little while, I guess, for the first year or two I was out of here, but I think I also needed that. I think you needed to experience that in order to get the kind of resilience that you need to be able to push through. So I suppose I wish I would have known that earlier, but if I didn't know it earlier, I wouldn't have earned it, I guess. That makes sense. Was there ever a time that you wanted to turn back and go home? Yeah, there were. Um, I got offered to direct like two feature films before Compound Fracture, and they both fell through. And it was just like such a heartbreaking experience to get it all the way to where they even wrote me a check, and I had a check in my hand. I went to the bank, and it bounced and then the person disappeared. This happened twice. In fact, one time I actually was at the bank with the person while it bounced. 
and I got so upset with this person. This was like maybe four or five years ago. I just let him have it. I lost it. I like snapped. Everything that I had had difficulties with up to that point culminated into this moment, and I just snapped on this guy. I feel bad now, but I, I was like a 25 or 26-year-old kid, and I made this 40-some-year-old gentleman cry in the bank. And I felt certain victory because I actually told him what I, he needed to hear, but at the same time, I felt a little bit bad about that because I had reached a point where whatever it was that was going on pushed me to the point where I was doing that, and I felt like... Maybe this business ain't for me. I don't know if I want to become a person that can do this kind of a thing. And I felt bad about it for a while. But then I realized that, and I look back on it, and I'm like, man, that guy really screwed me, though. I spent so much time, and I asked so many people favors to get this guy's movie made, and I was going to direct it. And it fell through, and everybody got screwed. It sucked. I felt really bad about it. So I, the guy did kind of deserve it. And as much as I feel bad about that, and I've kind of like, morally felt a little bit you know regretful that I said some of the things I said to that guy I learned from that experience and I think I understood that it's going to be imp hard if not impossible to get what you want out of this business unless you really have the ability to push through those moments when it's the hardest thing for you in the world and you feel like just crushed if you can push past that I think you have what it takes to stay in this industry. I've had friends that have fallen off, and I don't blame one bit. I feel like I kind of wish I did fall off at one point because I've had to go through some pretty intense experiences in my life as a result of choosing this career path. But you know, then you look at it like, well, at least I'm, yeah, at least I'm doing what I love, and I can, and I'm safe. You know, I have a lot of friends that are in the military, and they have to do things that threaten their life every day, but they still do it. And if they got, if those guys can do it, and they're, in their heart, they're willing to put forth that kind of effort, you know, what I have, my problems in my life are so minuscule compared to that, and I, I can't even compare it, and it's just like, you know, you start to think about things like that, and you're like, well, of course I'm gonna keep going, why not? Do you know what I mean? It's just like a. Everybody, like, there's always somebody else out there that's got it a lot worse than you do. So, you just gotta remember that.